Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm very pleased to be joined by the poet and playwright Lem Sisse, whose new book is a memoir called My Name Is Why, or possibly My Name Is Why. you have to read to the end of the book to find out how to pronounce that title. Lem, welcome. Thanks, This Sam. book begins, it doesn't quite begin with Lem Sisse, it begins with a boy called Norman Greenwood. Yes, it does. Tell me a bit about Norman Greenwood. Who is he? Well, Norman Greenwood is uh, named after the social worker who gave me two foster parents and said to the foster parents, his name must be Norman. You, you know, there are many things that you're going to change in him, like any parents, but you can't change his name. His name's Norman. They wanted to call me Mark, after Mark in the Bible. So my name became Norman, middle name Mark Greenwood. So that's how I became Norman, I guess. But I was always my original name, the name that was on my birth certificate. So legally, I was not Norman Mark Greenwood. Only I didn't know. And I think my name is why. It's about the search for a name. And your situation, I mean, for readers who don't know, listeners who don't know, you were born to an Ethiopian mother in Wigan, wasn't it? That's right, yeah. And how did you come to be fostered? What was the, you know, what turned you initially, circumstance-wise, into Norman? 1967-68 was a time of great adoption, the great adoption drive, really. Uh, Women were coming over from Ireland who were pregnant without a husband. In the late 1960s, if you were pregnant and if you didn't have a husband, you were the equivalent of an oestrogen terrorist. And you had to be contained, otherwise you would explode and the moral compass of society, the church and state, would fall to pieces. And so these mother and baby homes were set up around England. And mainly women from Ireland came, but also women from the from the towns, villages and cities of, of England. My mother came to England to study in 1966-67. She was pregnant. She found herself pregnant. She had no intention of staying here. Ethiopia was never colonised, so it had no relationship with England other than as any international community has, like, like the English, you know, other than using the resources from around the world. So she came here for education. She was going back as part of the Emperor Haile Selassie's expansion programme. Found herself pregnant, was sent to the north of England. I by said, do we know anything about the biological father? We do, yes. We really do, yeah. My biological father's father was asked by my mother's father if my father would look after my mother in her first journey abroad. Does that make sense? Yeah, he was her chaperone. He was her chaperone. Indeed he was. Never trust a chaperone. And so, and so he, he did look after her and she, was, she became pregnant by him. He became a pilot for Ethiopian Airlines. Uh-huh. Um, in fact, he was a pilot he doesn't, at the he time. Because he doesn't feature in here that I... He you, doesn't you at left all. Him out. Yeah. No, I, 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 I would... I would have him in if he played any other part. You know, I would go into my mother's story. I I think I know the hotel that I was conceived in. This was my mother alone in the country, finding that she was pregnant and having to cope with that. And indeed, she does mention him in the letter later on in the book. Yeah, she's in a mother and baby home, and the primary purpose of the mother and baby home is to get the vulnerable women who are often on the bridge between childhood and adulthood within this 
within the situation of being pregnant, to get them to sign the adoption papers. The great adoption drive of that time was 1968. That's when it peaked. There was something like 68,000 women who had their children adopted uh, in England. That's documented in a Guardian article about the adoption drive of the 60s. But my mum wouldn't sign the adoption papers because she had no intention of having me adopted. She wanted me fostered for a short period of time. 1967-68 was also the time where race was a big issue in society. We think Stephen Lawrence is a big race issue of our time, but it was 1967-68 when, when race was on the minds of everybody in society. And there were marches and and the like, and that's when Oswald, not Oswald Mosley. Um, Enoch Powell. Yes, Enoch yeah. Powell's Rivers, Rivers of Blood speech was in 68. Yeah. The Beatles' White Album is called The Beatles' Album. It's not called The White Album at all. It only became The White Album when it became a hit in America. Americans called it The White Album, and then that reflected back here, and people here call it The White Album. But even to this day, it's not called The White Album. It's actually the Beatles album. The reason it was called the White Album is because it was relative, at the time, to a set of people where the word white and black were never more associated with race. The words white and black in the 1960s, in the late 1960s, were about, the, the, the terms were about race. So to call an album the White Album in 1968 is not an accident in terms of it relating to race. If you look it's at a, 1968, you couldn't call it's an a album... a case of con conscious race-baiting by the Beatles, do you think? Or what? Not at all, not at all. No, 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 no. I think the Beatles are actually totally innocent in this case. Are totally innocent, but America isn't. And it wasn't in 68. You know, in 68, no. it was race was the, the top of the agenda. So it was a very big deal, quite a charged deal, for you to be fostered by a white family. My mother landed in the middle of that... Why would the social worker change my name? Why would the social worker then give me to foster parents who were, believe themselves to be helping a child and say to the child, say to the foster parents, he's yours forever, we'll get us to sign the adoption papers, don't worry. Why do you think he did that? Well, you have to look at the time and who he was. He would have been in his 30s, which would have took him to... In the 60s, would have took him to just the edge of the Second World War, born out of. He couldn't have had much respect for my mother to have done that. So I am going to suggest that his view of Africa was so limited in the late 60s. His idea that of, a, of it being a place where there are adults who are intelligent and functioning... My mother wanted me fostered, but she would not sign the adoption papers because she didn't want me adopted. She wanted me fostered while she studied and she was in an adoption factory where women were made to feel guilty, then made to sign the adoption papers and then the, the narrative could be established for the adopting parents to get ahead with the child. But she kind of dug her heels in and yet yes, by the well, time she was back in Ethiopia it was kind of a done deal. Yeah, yeah, he must have felt uh, contempt for her, for him to have given me to foster parents and said... His name is Norman. And the foster parents then... Let's talk a little bit about them, because yeah. to start with, the Greenwoods appeared to be a very loving family. They yes. said, you know, I'm your mum, I'm your dad. Well, You're they taught forever, me... They? Yeah, they taught me... I, hadn't, I wasn't speaking when I went to them. I didn't know language. I was a baby. 
So they taught me to say mum and dad, and, and it was always said that they were my parents forever. There was no question about it, and that my mother didn't want me. That narrative was established, and it fits adoption, if you can say the mother didn't want you, or wasn't good enough to keep you. It's not always the case. It's a clean narrative, but it's not always the case. I don't know many women who just thought, just don't want my child, yeah. you know what I mean? And there is coercion has been proved in the 60s, and... There's a lot of mothers now trying to get apologies from the social services for the way that they were manipulated into signing the adoption papers and then told that maybe they can see their child in the future but never could. My mum saw through all of that and didn't sign the adoption papers and did have to go back to Ethiopia because her father was dying. The social worker had no intention of giving me back to her and I was Norman Mark Greenwood in Lancashire with a loving mother and father who I loved and a loving church, you know, Brim Baptist Church and friends at school and prayer meetings and... And you seem to have been a happy child. Are you and kidding me? I was so happy. I, you know, summer holidays and the 1976, you know, boiling hot summer where the tarmac melted in the streets and we had jubblies and curly whirlies and, you know, and it was a village with a big park and a little park and a, a chemist and a butcher with a butcher's block that sort of bent like a pig's back in the middle because of the scratching of the iron comb on it and I mean I I loved my life and this I mean one of the odd things between the lines in this book that fractures that comes to an end and yet it's it's sort of hard to see how and why it does because there's almost sort of two strands in this narrative that suddenly you've got the sort of reports from school and the reports from some of the social workers saying you know Norman is a happy child, he's well-adjusted, he's friendly, he's outgoing, he seems to be, you know, it's not like you were this sort of problem child. No, never was. And yet then... But then, can I just hold you there? Because children deserve to be problems. Like, if anybody's had a child, they will know that their child causes them a problem probably every hour. Yes. No, (laughs) I have (laughs) I can... (laughs) certainly approve that and the parents job is to manage themselves with the problems of their beautiful problem making children and and yet when you're fostered or in care the idea that you're a problem or that you present problems suddenly becomes a threat to the whole structure of whether or not you should be cared for and i i believe that caring is caring for a child when there is naughty that's why parents say, you know, I'm going to punish you, but I do love you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're so sure to say that. And I, as soon as you take away that love, all you have is, I'm going to punish you. Yeah. And it, it suddenly becomes very dark. And, it, and, you know, the story moves on in that direction. But I mean, at this particular point, there, you know, your parents seem to be starting to say to the social services, yeah. you know, having been very loving and, yes. you know, you, you're their child, saying, actually, he's impossible, he's acting out, he's behaving, you know, in a threatening way, in a violent way, he's rebelling. And yet, even at the same time, we're getting reports saying you're not like that at all. Why do you think they started to kind of pursue this narrative, this idea? I mean, that's the thing that's sort of a mystery in the book, is why they did sort of effectively turn against you. And it was a mystery to me, you know, when your parents leave you and take all of the family with them, you you are at a loss, in fact, bewildered as to how it was your fault, because there's no doubt that it was your fault. There's no doubt it was my fault when I went into care. It was my fault, and I, I was being sent away because I had to work out what I had done. Yeah. So, Do you have a sense of it now? 
I know precisely what happened. I was the oldest. My foster mother suffered from postnatal depression. I think all the clues are actually in the book. I was 12 and I was just starting to do the things that teenage boys now I know do. Stealing biscuits from the tin, staying out late, let, you know, with friends at the flower park or the big park, lying. I mean, I was a cracking liar. I mean, I, I had lied because I, I, you know, I was a, what my foster parents saw was a boy that everybody loved, but who was a little liar at home. And this lying and stealing biscuits and staying out late and lying about why you're late and lying about stealing biscuits, this lying was seen as a, a malevolence, a deliberate connivance to undermine them relative to wider society. So this made me a sort of like a, a threat a sort of insider, a sort of Trojan horse into their religiosity and family values. So they started to look at me as if, what are you doing like that? You know, what, who are you? What is growing inside of you, you know? And most parents who have teenage sons will, will or daughters even, will think, will have, think the same thing. Like, who the heck are you? I gave birth to you and you're lying to me. How does that happen? Who's that for? Is that from me? This can't be from me. I'm the father who hugged you, who you used to run to when you cried, when you dropped your lolly on the floor, and now you're telling me that you don't give a crap about me, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, they suddenly separated me from their love and saw my natural adolescence as some form of threat to their commitment. So I owed them, basically, and I wasn't showing gratitude. And I don't actually believe that any teenage kids should until they realise, you know. Yeah. You, you see your own that. teenager, you know, <laughs> push against you and you think, oh, you can push against, keep pushing, but you want at some point for them to hold their arms out and ask for a hug or to say, I'm sorry. And they do, and it might even take till they're in the 20s for them to do it, but they will. And your patience is where your love is. And your anger is where your love is. But you're there. And they didn't show that patience and they had the let out that they could say. That was it. I, I became the fall guy. So they, my foster mother had another baby called baby Helen, and that was the crux. Then suddenly they had three children and me, and they were cutting their losses. Every family has its fall guy. Yeah. You know, it could be an uncle, a cousin, a father, a mother. Every family has a fall guy, and I became the fall guy for the family. And, and in fact, it's often the fall guy who can reflect a very insightful view of the family. Well, I mean, I mean there is a line in the book which sort of jumped out at me where you say sort of basically why you said that the reason I'm writing this book is so they can get an idea of what happened so you've got a sort of in a way you've got an audience of two yeah. I mean do you see this as a, an act of reproach or revenge or reconciliation that's a really really good question Sam it can't be revenge because if it's revenge there is a, a bitterness in revenge which is utterly unattractive and very one note I believe, but it has to be, when they put me into care, they knew what they were doing. When they said they would never get in touch with me, they knew what they were doing. They were writing me out of their memory. They were then gonna go back to the entire family, all my aunties and uncles and cousins and granddads and say, don't be in touch with him, he's left us. He doesn't want us, you know. He's chosen a different path. And so they could then rewrite. They could write that to everybody. I only know that through the fact that they left me. They said it to me, but they left me, man. and. So I'm writing this book because I got my files. That's central to what this book is. And you it know, took you like 30 years? It took me 30 years. The last insert in my file is my request to see my files. 
at 18, as soon as I'd left care. I then made a documentary on Radio 4 called Child of the State in 2010 about getting those files and was told that they were lost in the Iron Mountain. I received the files in 2015. The primary reason I'm writing this book is because I have got a document which replaces family. Family is a set of disputed memories between one group of people over a lifetime and I had nobody to dispute the memory of me. So these files are the equivalent of a memory that can be disputed or spoken about. And in lieu of family, in lieu of having anybody who keeps me in mind from the age of 18 downwards, that's all I have. And, 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 and what is in those files is shocking. Just like any memory, anybody's one memory of, of their childhood is shocking quite possibly to the father, the mother, the sisters, the brothers, who can say, that didn't happen, that wasn't like that. These files prove that I'm not going crazy. Yeah, it happened. And what, I mean, if anything, is your relationship with the Greenwoods now? I mean, presumably, if you're writing it, as you described, they're still alive and they'll be aware of you. My foster father, David, is is not alive. He died in, um, I don't know when, when I was in care I think or when I was about 20 maybe my foster mother uh, obviously I told her about the book sent her the manuscript and I've always offered them in any documentary that I've ever made the opportunity to be able to speak their side of the story and say that it's not true what I'm saying uh, I'm making a BBC documentary being made about me now and they have written to Catherine and said if you want to say anything you can do there is a, a Radio 4 the Today programme um, which I guest edited today, contacted Catherine to say, would you like to say anything? I have found the only way to be able to come to terms with what happened to me. They could have called. They could have called at any point. Made a documentary in 1995. The BBC went to see them then. I, I ran away to them. And they sat me in the front room like I was a stranger and called a social worker. This is proof of what they did. And I'm sorry, but... I know a lot more foster children who are going through a lot worse than I did and they don't have the ability, the present ability to be able to name it, what's happening. I spoke to one today. So this is not revenge, but this is a relativity for me. If this is what you have made for me in relative to my childhood, then this is what it is. This is what it is. You talk as you go on to about you know the authority, capital A, deliberately, yeah, which is the system, yeah. Thing. There is a sort of little golden thread that runs through it, though. That your social worker, the person who gave you your first name, Norman Mills, is that the same guy? It's not. This is just was it a this different is, Norman. This Mills? is a different Norman. This is ah. one of the powerful coincidences that's happened in my life. Norman Goldthorpe named me after himself. Oh, sorry, it's Norman Goldthorpe named you after it. But Norman Mills is the social worker who. It's like he's this one guy who's looking out for you the way th- all the way through, you know, in these files and these reports, he's the one who's sticking up for you. Did you know that was happening while it was happening? No, I didn't. I mean, per- you know, permission to be a teenager, you know. My, my, my job as a teenager was to antagonise my social worker or to sort of like work out, who the hell are you? What do you mean to me? What are you doing here, etc. But he was there for me and was trying to within... Remember, the bar's very low for somebody to shine in my life. I have nobody. I only met him once every month, at least, at the most. But it did matter. 
to be in mind of somebody, to have somebody sort of wanting to protect me, even if they couldn't, to have that record of that man, you know, sort of trying to stick up for me in the files. It's beautiful. He's a friend now. Yeah. Now, two of the things that... By the way... Yeah? Do you know most social workers are not allowed to be in touch with the young people that they form relationships with after they've left care? You know, social workers have to go through this thing where they build a relationship with a young child, they help them throughout their childhood, and it's often just traumatic for the child for various reasons, and then the social worker is not allowed to be in touch with the child as they become adults. I guess the care system that you describe is kind of, I mean, well, incredibly impersonal, incredibly bureaucratic, and punishment-based and, you know, you, you say at one point that, that I think the most institutionalised people in the care system are the workers. Do you think that's changed? Do you have a sense that, you know, this was the battle? Because the two of the things you're running up against are this institutionalised, depersonalising care system and the sort of, you know, if you like, old-school, trad, late-60s racism, you know, both of which one, you know, wants to ask, do you think they're different now? I mean, you know, nobody's putting up no blacks, no dogs, no Irish posters anymore. There's that sort of people. That kind of thing seems to have gone. And likewise, we'd like to think the care system's more. I mean, do you think either of those have changed fundamentally? I don't. I will be anecdotal because I know that, for example, that there are various surveys that the government has done, which is that shows that, you know, the average moves for children in care to be fostered is like three or four moves, at least. The average, sorry. What can I say to you? You know, I can take you to a girl who's now been impregnated by her foster father, you know, um, and who's got a baby by him and is finding justice. I can take you to the girl who was fostered, I was just speaking to her earlier on today, fostered five times and the fourth time was long-term fostering essentially adoption the government stops funding there's an actual term that they use now not adoption but another term and she found these this family finally who wanted to take her and because she had questions about her own sexuality they got rid of her you know she spoke to me this morning in pain as she described as the memory of her being wiped with each foster parent so if i see a child or an adult, let's say an adult, with broken legs on the floor of the street as I'm walking down it, I am not going to stand by that person and look at everybody else and say, it's okay, there are lots of people who are walking here. There are more people walking here now than there were in the 60s. There's still a person on the floor, you know what I mean? I'm I'm saying that because there is a lot of people who would like to feel that they're has been a great change, but that doesn't help the person who's hurt. Our society's changed. I'm not sure that fostering is the best way for a child who's come away from abusive family situation. The lobby is that fostering is the best thing, because it's a family, and every child needs a family. Do they? If a child has just come from an abusive family, what makes us think that he or she or they can sit in familial situation yeah though though in your own account even though the family most certainly done you wrong for a long time at least as a young man you looking back going that was better than what i've got now you know you have a series of institutions you're in is that not no not at all what it what 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 it was was that i was looking back because i couldn't believe that i'd been i didn't believe that they would leave me that was it i could have been anywhere and i would have looked back and gone when are they coming I didn't, they didn't explain to me what I'd done. They just told me that I, was ev- I had evil inside of me. And I think that, gosh, it sounds so dramatic when I shorthand it. But basically, 
it was to do with their religious teachings. I'm not against religion, by the way, but it was to do with their, their sense of what was right and what was wrong and evil and good and the like. Can we talk about a couple of the things that helped you, that served you along? There seemed to be two, one of which was coming a bit more to consciousness of your blackness as an identity and as something that you could take pride in and, you know, draw inspiration from. And there's a lovely story about how you got your first Afro comb from Errol Brown, the lead singer of Hot Chocolate. And I, my first thought on that was, Errol Brown is as bald as a bloody coot. <laughs> did he give it to you because he had no need of it anymore? I mean, <laughs> kind of bizarre, how did he right? to have it in his pocket? I know? think he must have actually had conversations with my foster mother at the hospital. And I think that he must have gone out, you know, and bought me an Afro comb. But yeah, he is bald as a coot. I mean, and yeah, and I got my first Afro comb off for Errol Brown. Yeah. And your first stage experience with Lenny, with Henry. Lenny Henry. I mean, the yeah. sort of, you know, late 60s, early 70s kind of, you know, black role models. But it doesn't queuing up to help you out. So true. Gosh, that's true. I've never thought of that. I've never actually put those two things together. Have you met Lenny since? You, I have, yeah. yeah. And, and in fact, he's... Reminded he, him, presumably. Of- he, well, he's reading the book now, actually, as, like, as we speak. And I've got a picture of him reading it on my Facebook, which is really kind of him to give me. But I never put those two things together, both Lenny Henry and Errol Brown, my first stage experience and my first Afrocomb, because when I was... Writing this book, I came to the memory of Lenny Henry and, uh, and and of that event and then wrote it as the memory came to me more. And th- that is also sort of dovetails with the other thing, which is your discovery of poetry. And you talk about learning to write poems as like planting flags on your ascent of You know, they were the thing that sort of punctuated your progress to adulthood and that kind of gave you a sense of achievement and where you were going, I suppose. But you also talk about that, that, you know, the inspiration, you know, Bob Marley's lyrics were there in your early poems. Mm. And also by implication, the Mersey sound, the... Oh, without a doubt. Brian Patton, Roger McGough. Yeah, yeah. Thing. I mean, yeah. what, it makes what else were you reading me, that made, gave you poetry, um, you know, I in, think in into poetry? The Bible was a very big influence to me. I'd read the Bible so many times by the time I went into care that I was fully ready to use metaphor at every possibility. The storms, the seas, the barren landscapes, the even the turning to salt, the power of those stories was, it felt like, in my DNA. And they were very real, because good and bad, evil and uh, spirituality, they, these were all a very real part of my Can I ask you, there's life. a poem... There's a poem you use as the absolute epigraph of the book, which interests me. I want to maybe you'd be better Read reading it. it than me, but do you want to just? I don't do think this it one? reads aloud as well as it does on the page, but maybe it doesn't on the page. But it is. I am the bull in the china shop with all my strength and will. As a storm smashed the teacups, I stood still. I'm interested in why you've taken that as a sort of epigraph because it's there is a sense in that poem that, of strength, and of being anchored as a bull, but. That all the smashed china around you is not it's, it's, it's not, not you who's it's smashing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I did smash china in, in in that I did come in late. I did I was I was a live spark <laughs> as a kid, you know, and I but I wasn't a bad kid. And that's not reflected in the school reports or any other body's reports. And I didn't have some master plan to to manipulate the parents. I loved them intensely. I'm loath to say I was a bad kid because I wasn't. Well, how did your... I mean, you said it's a book about your name. Everything points at me being a bad kid, doesn't it? 
Like, they put me into care, they said they'd never speak to me again. I had to convince myself that I wasn't a bad kid. How long way, did that take? There's nobody writing in. There's nobody. You look on my Facebook. Look, look up. Look, look, look. Go through all my emails. There's nobody writing back saying, "My God, Lem, you were an absolute nightmare." Do you know what I mean? Like, it's not there. It didn't happen. And how long? How long did it take you to be satisfied you weren't a bad kid? <laughs> well, you know, you're still, still probably actually maybe working you're protesting it. quite strongly now. So yeah, but it's just uh, it's this funniest thing. You know, I do get my therapy, you know what I mean? I try not to exact what happened to me on anybody else, including myself. But I spent my childhood and my teenage and my 20s maybe and maybe more thinking, what did I do wrong? What is there wrong with me that means that I did something wrong but I couldn't see what it was? And now there's nothing. I was nothing more than a normal teenager who actually made lots of people happy. And what my friend said to me, I think is right, is she said, your light shone too bright. You scared them. And this is where innocence in a family can really, if, you know, innocence is a real challenge to an institution. It needs you to have done something wrong for it to help you. Yeah, or punish you. Or punish, well, yes. Did the point at which, I mean, there's a, very strong bit of book where you say over and over again, my name is Lemsis, my name is... Was it and when you discovered, I think it was a, you know, one of the earliest documents you got that said, this is your birth name? Yeah, yeah. And was it sort of instant you went, that's me? I mean, I'm wondering, because, you know, if you've grown up thinking of yourself as dormant, yeah. is there a sort of slow process or was it almost like, this is what's wrong, this is what I've been missing, I am Lem from that moment forth? I mean, when I received my birth certificate... And I saw my name Lem Sisse, and I saw my mother's name Yamar Shet Sisse. I was like, that's it, of course. Because up until that point, I hadn't known. All I knew was, if you've been keeping my name from me, what else have you been keeping me from me? Because here I am, locked in this institution at 16 and a half years of age, knowing that I didn't do anything wrong. And here you are preparing me for leaving care by giving me my birth certificate because there's no family to give it to, to hold it for. So you have to admit to me what my name is just before my adulthood. You did something wrong. I don't know what it is, but I know you did something wrong. And this is the proof. And this is the beginning of the proof. There's nothing worse than a person in an institution who the institution has been built for who also knows that it does not work. You then become a a real threat. And anybody who works in an office knows that. If you name what's not working, you're a threat. We should ask also about your birth mother because, again, she's another of the missing sort of, you know, the dot, dot, dots of this story. Did you manage to find her? I found my mother within three years of leaving care. So I was 21 when I found her. She was 21 when she had me. So when I found her, I looked like the last time she'd saw my father. That's what she saw, yeah. People don't realise that. And then it gets complicated. So when you start to find your family, then it gets complicated because family is complicated. So is that why? I mean, I was curious why, because obviously the reader goes... Hang on a second, what happened? You know, we want one of those epilogues even saying what's, yeah, well, what happened next, what happened next, where they are, are they still alive, are they, you know... There's more books to write. And, <laughs> you know, there's more books to write. And that was the one comment from uh, my good friend Henry Normal. He's a poet, but he's also the guy behind Steve Coogan and behind the Mighty Boosh, etc. He set up Baby Cow Productions. It's all about the writing. Philomena, 
all about the writing, the film. And he said the same thing about wanting an epilogue, but there's more to write. Right, another book. Well, I think that we'll just leave it, leave it there then. Lem Tese, thank you very much indeed for your time. Sam Leith, thank you. Thank you for listening. I'd also like to tell you about an upcoming event where I'll be talking to Frank DeCurta about his new book, How to Be a Dictator, for a live recording of this podcast. The event takes place at Charlotte Street Hotel in London on Tuesday the 3rd of September and it promises to be a great evening and tickets are still available. Please head to spectatorcouk forward slash Frank if you'd like to sign up and listen to the podcast recorded live. <laughs>